took a break last week from our study in the book of Psalms, and we did a Christmas message. And jumping back into our study in Psalms, right now we'll be doing Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is one of the little bit longer psalms, if you take a look at that, 35 verses there. And it's an interesting psalm. One commentator mentioned the idea of almost a parade, a victory parade, and I kind of ran with that idea because I thought this makes sense. Because the idea here of Psalm 68, it feels like it bounces from topic to topic. But it's actually very cohesive when you get through its entirety. But as you're reading through it, it makes it sound like we go from this to this to this. And that's a little bit like what a parade is. Have you ever thought about a parade? Talk about a mixed group. You have a church float followed by the fire department, followed by a dance studio, followed by a marching band, and then the Boy Scouts, and everybody's throwing candy at you. It's a really strange thing when you think about it. And this psalm kind of does jump from topic to topic to topic, but when we get done with it, we see it's this beautiful, cohesive unit of what God is doing. And I want you to keep in mind the idea of this parade. And you see that in verse 24. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before the players on instruments, followed after them. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There's little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulon and the princes of Naphtali. You see all these different groups of people here. Now, what is the story behind this? We don't know for sure. You can make a case that maybe it was when David brought the ark into Israel. There's a lot of symbolism with that. Maybe there was a military victory. But it sure looks like the nation of Israel is coming together in this time of celebration for what God has done. So that's where we get the idea of this victory parade. If you look at the introduction to the chief musician of Psalm of David, a song, that's a pretty standard introduction that we've done many times before. Chief musician could be a person, the literal chief musician, or it could be a reference to God himself, the chief musician. This is a psalm and a song. One translator called it a lyrical poem, something that could be read, something that could be sung, but it would definitely bless us. So with that being said, let's jump into this victory parade and see what we have. Verse 1, let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. What a beginning. Let God arise. That's a great start. I know as a parent, and I see this a lot with the twins. They're about three and a half now. I can verbally tell them to do something, and probably 10% of the time they'll listen. But if I stand up, that jumps up to near 100 right there. Because when dad stands up, let dad arise, you know it means business. I remember Betsy teaching in one of the parenting classes that you can't parent from the couch. That you just can't sit on the couch and yell at your kids what you want them to do. You need to stand up. You need to go see what they're doing. You need to go check to make sure they completed the job. And that's what I see here. Let God arise. God, stand up. And as you stand up, Look what happens, verse 2. Smoke is driven away. Smoke that is annoying, blinding, dangerous is driven away. The wax melts. Wax that when it's actually hard, it is that. It is hard. But when you put any type of heat on it, it melts into nothing. So these wicked people melt and are driven away before God. What a neat picture that is. 
And this should remind us as, as we go through this. I think of that first beginning. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. This is a picture back to how Israel used to travel. You don't need to turn there. But in Numbers chapter 10. When they would get ready to move. And they would move the ark. Which represented the visible presence of God. As they were going through enemy territory. They would do this in Numbers 10. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for three days journey. To search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. So as soon as this psalm starts, you see the connection back to Numbers chapter 10. And that's why some people believe this is a picture of a war victory. Or maybe a picture of the ark coming back into Jerusalem. Because it's the same terminology. Rise up, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. What a wonderful picture to know. Whatever smoke that is annoying, blinding, or dangerous is completely driven away in the Lord. Whatever wax just melts under the heat and becomes nothing. The wicked melt and are driven away before God. So now, think of that problem. Think of that person that is smoke to your eyes. Annoying, blinding, dangerous. Somebody that's wax that needs to be melted. That person that's intimidating, that's offensive, that's harsh. That boss, that coworker, that family member, and realize they're nothing before the presence of the Lord. I like what Spurgeon says about this, and I've shared this quote with you before. Why then should we stand in awe of one who is as frail as ourselves? Let us not dishonor our God by making a God of puny man. We can make an idol of a man by rendering to him excessive fear, as well by paying him inordinate love. Let us treat men as men, and God as God. And then we should go calmly on in the path of duty, fearing the Lord and fearing nobody else. Do we ever do that? Do we make an idol of man by rendering to him excessive fear? Ah, the Lord teaches us they melt in the presence of God. And they're driven away in the presence of God. What a beautiful picture of that is. So what do we do in response to this? Verse 3, we rejoice. Some wonderful songs this morning just to really prepare our hearts here for what the Lord was going to say. And we rejoice. But look at the wording there in verse 3. We rejoice before God. Verse 3, we rejoice exceedingly. And then verse 4, we sing praises. And then verse 4, we extol Him. Now it's interesting that these are all different words, even though some of them are translated the same way. That idea of rejoice. The first word for rejoice is, it means to leap. We would use the term jump for joy. That there's almost a physical reaction. We raise our hands, we clap, we praise, we rejoice for what God has done, verse 3. But then the second word for rejoice in verse 3 is the idea of be glad. There's just a, a feeling of gladness and joy for what the Lord has done. Which leads us to praise, verse 4, and then verse 4, we extol Him. Extol is a Bible word. We don't really use it a lot in everyday language, but it carries the idea of lifting up, building up praise. It actually is used in other times in the Bible about building up roads. So this idea of when we see God arise, His power, His majesty, driving away, melting the enemies, the only response is to leap, jump for joy, to be glad in our hearts, to praise Him, and then to extol, lift Him up, build Him up. This is the victory parade of rejoicing, praising, extolling. Beautiful picture. 
And not only that, verse 4, extol him who rides on the clouds. The clouds. Now, and why do they mention the clouds? It's amazing how often in the Bible the word clouds is mentioned there because it's something you look up almost in awe and wonderment. They're right there. And it looks like you could almost just go out and touch those big, fluffy, cumulus clouds. I find it interesting in the book of Nahum, it says this about the clouds. It says, The Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. What a neat picture. The clouds are the dust of His feet. It's almost like God is trying to say, when you look up to the sky and you see those clouds and those things that you think are so majestic, so mighty, so amazing, those are just dust coming off the feet of God. That's how big and powerful and majestic the Lord is. Obviously, it's not a real picture, but it's supposed to be that thing that puts you in the mindset of that's how big your God is. He rides on the clouds. He is so much above us in all ways and all things. And his name is Yah. That's not a word you see a lot in the Bible. Now, you use it all the time. You just don't realize you use it all the time. Yah, it's a shortened form of Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the Lord. If you look in your Bible, all caps, L-O-R-D. It means the self-existing, I am. That's how the Bible describes it. What a way to describe God. I am. I have no beginning. I have no end. I just am. I exist. This is hard for our minds to grasp. Because everything in our world starts with a beginning and an end. Christmas is over. Now we move on to the next season. We're almost done with December. We go into January. There's a clock in the sanctuary. It's back there so I can see it, not so you can see it. So it reminds me to be done at 11.30. You have a birth date. You have a death date. You have a time you go into work. You have a time you come home from work. There is this beginning and the end. And then you get to something like Yah, Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, and you realize He just is. No beginning, no end, self-existing, I am. Now, I said you use this word a lot because the word hallelujah is a compound word of just the word Yah, God, and the first part, halal, but hallelujah, that idea is praise. So when you're saying hallelujah, you're saying praise God. And you see the shortened form of Yahweh there at the end of that. So Yah is his name, and we rejoice. What a great start to this victory parade. God, you drive away our enemies, you melt them, you blow them away, so we will rejoice, we will praise, we will extol you. Now, why else do we do that? Let's get into some practical reasons why. Verse 5, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. If you look here, there's a few things he says specifically. In verse 5, he wants us to praise him for his ministry to the orphans, to the widows, to the lonely, and to the captives. So often people are trying to figure out God's will for their lives, and they make it way too difficult. We speak in these ambiguous terms. Does God want me to move to Africa? Well, he may. I don't know. But right here, right now, verse 5, you have orphans, widows, lonely, and captives that need ministered to. So let's just keep that simple. First one, a father of the fatherless. God wants us to have a ministry to orphans. You know, James 1.27 says this, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. To visit orphans and widows and their trouble. What does a ministry to orphans look like? I don't know what that looks like for you personally. I know when we read James 1.27, Dawn and I, the Lord really stirred our heart years ago, and that's why we got into foster care, is to stop and say, we want to minister to the orphans. 
Now, maybe the Lord's stirring you into that. I don't know. Maybe adoption's in your future. It may just be that you have a kid in your neighborhood. Yeah, that, yeah, he's got a dad, but he really doesn't have a dad. And maybe you're just going to kind of take him under your wing. Maybe there's a family in the neighborhood where it's a single mom and there is no dad. And you're going to stop and say, we want to minister to them. There are orphans to minister to. Maybe you feel led to do more, but you just can't in this season of life. Then maybe your job is to go financially support people that are ministering to orphans. To find a ministry. But I highly encourage you to see the beauty of the ministry to the fatherless, that God says. Which takes us to the next one. A defender of widows. The ministry to widows. The importance of that beautiful picture of ministering to widows. If you look through Old and New Testament, God specifically calls out widows and orphans repeatedly. Repeatedly. And we should look for widows in our neighborhood, in our church, in our family, and stop and say, how can we minister to those widows? What does that look like again? I don't know what it looks like for you practically. I would say at the minimum, how about you just make a mental list, write it down of all the widows you know, and commit one day of prayer for those widows. Maybe it's more practical ministry. You have a widow down the road from you. You stop and you realize, hey, there's four inches of snow coming. I'm going to contact them. Do you need anything from the store before it hits? Can I come plow you out after it hits? Maybe it's a practical ministry to widows. Maybe there's more where your home is opened up to minister to widows. I don't know what it looks like, but I know you'll be blessed to do it. Can you go with me to Galatians 6? I'm going to build on this a little bit. Galatians 6. As you're going to Galatians 6, he also mentions the ministry to the solitary, to the lonely. There are some sheep that just need extra love and extra attention. They're lonely, they're solitary. And they need that extra love and extra attention. You may know that person that just does not have the friendships and the relationships that you are blessed with. And God may be saying, that's the person you need to spend a little more time with. That may be an extra call, an extra text, an extra card. It may be when you see them at church, you specifically go over and mention, invite them, etc. Those sheep that need extra love and extra attention. And lastly, the captives. This may be somebody set in the prison of sin that is held captive, that you can go minister to, disciple and, and minister Christ to. Maybe it's somebody that is actually captive. I have a guy that I have a relationship with that um, is spending life in prison. And met him, knew him before he got himself into trouble. He got himself into trouble. And as far as I know, the family's disowned him. Everybody's disowned him. I can't imagine how lonely that is. Now, I'm not defending his actions in any way whatsoever. I try to write them a couple times a year and just stop and say, hey, listen, you're not forgotten. You're prayed for. I know a guy that did many years in prison. He talks about how you receive anything in the mail. Any letter is just a blessing. And you'll read it and read it and read it again. I try to send this guy scriptures and encouragement. Maybe you have a writing ministry to somebody that's in prison to be able to go help them and represent Christ to them. But back to the ministry of widows in Galatians 6. You know, 1 Timothy 5 goes into much more detail if you want to further study on that. But it's amazing how often in the Old Testament you see God ministering to widows. And Jesus in the New Testament, I think of the example in the Gospels of where the widow lost her son. And it stressed her only son. So here she was a widow. She had no son. That means she is responsible for herself. There was no real fund to take care of these widows. She was on her own. She needed that support. She didn't have the husband. She didn't have the son. And as they're carrying the casket out, Jesus comes to the funeral, sets his hand on the casket, and does what? Raises him from the dead. Jesus really knows how to mess up a funeral, doesn't he? But there's the special ministry to widows. I want to share this about the ministry to widows. I've been to a lot of 
end-of-life moments with widows, done a lot of funerals, and I try to never say, I know what you're going through, because I, I don't know what they're going through. That is a unique sorrow, a special sorrow that I've never experienced. And I think it's really interesting that the Bible says a defender of widows. God knows, but I don't. And any time I've ever been at the end of life moments where somebody's lost a spouse, I always think in the back of my mind, I get to go home to my wife. I go to a funeral and here we are saying goodbye after years of marriage together and I think I get to go home to my spouse. I don't know what they're going through. But I still want to minister to them. Galatians 6 verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the ministry we're talking about. Bear one another's burdens. That may be that burden of helping them out physically. That may be that burden of praying for them. That burden of caring. That burden of contacting them. Saying, hey, I'm thinking of you. Bear the burdens with them. That's what Christ has asked you to do. Then verse 3. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one, let each one examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Now this is where it changes. Verse 2, burdens, and load, verse 5, are different words in the Greek. The first one, verse 2, means I go help you carry something that's too heavy for you. But verse 5 says that there are some things that I can't help you with. I can't take away the pain of losing a spouse. I can't. That is a, a, a sorrow that only that widow knows in grass. And maybe that widow can speak to another widow. And they can have that brief moment of, yeah, I can relate a little. But the reality is, I had decades with this person that no one else had. And I knew them better than anybody. All those memories, all those stories are gone. And that's a load that that person has to carry on their own. Because nobody can come in and take that pain and hurt from them. Each one must bear his own load. Now that sounds extremely harsh, but now when you go back to Psalm 68, verse 5, that's why God says he's a defender of widows. Because the Lord knows the pain, the Lord knows the hurt, and he's the one that's there more than anything else. Look at the practical ministry God has given us to orphans, widows, lonely, and captives. And I highly encourage you to commit that to prayer to see what that looks like for you and your family. Verse 7. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah. It's interesting that there's a pause right there for Selah. Seems like it kind of chops it up. But as soon as he mentions wilderness, it's really that big a deal. There needs to be a pause. This is something we don't fully relate to or grasp. We're not Jews. We don't fully understand. We can read it in the Bible, but it's not our heritage to see how God has provided for them. As soon as they would mention wilderness... The Jews would stop and say, the wilderness. God gave us manna every day. Gave us water out of the rock. He gave us the pillar of fire. He gave us the cloud. He gave us all this. The rock, the manna, the food. He protected us from enemies. As soon as the word wilderness is mentioned, they understand and realize God's provision and His holiness because this generation that did not have faith then was forced to wander for 40 years until they died off. The word wilderness would really get their attention. That's why there's a Selah after it. To stop and say, pause, think, meditate on the depth of what we're going to talk about now of the wilderness. Verse 8. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. 
Sinai itself is moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, send a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelled in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home divides a spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. We need to understand and grasp here what they were getting into. Now, real quick, before we get into this, I want to show you here real quick. Verse 8, the heavens also dropped rain. Now, if your Bible's like my Bible, it has the word rain in italics. That means the, the translators added it to make it a little more clear. Because it literally is saying in the Hebrews, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Now, I think that makes more sense, and I'll show you that in a little bit. Understand when you read through the Bible, they're translating this. And and translations can get a little interesting sometimes. It's not a perfect art. It really isn't. I I think of the example that I... It's very common in the idea from English to Spanish. We say the phrase, I am hungry. Okay, well, in Spanish, they don't say I am hungry. They say, I have hunger. Now, that sounds weird to us. If I would come up to you and say, I have hunger... You'd be able to figure out what I'm saying, but that really sounds a little strange. I have hunger. I come up to you and say, I am hungry. You get it. You fall. Now flip that around to speaking to someone with Spanish. You go up to them and say, I am hungry. They're going to stop and say, no, you're not. You're James. You see, you're saying, I am hungry. But see, it makes more sense to say, I have hunger. It's just a translation thing. So even though the phrase literally in Spanish is, I have hunger, when we translate it over, we translate it to, I am hungry. You follow what I'm saying. As the translators are going through this, this phrase comes up and it says, the heavens also drop. It sounds a little rough. There's a phrase they use called the Hebrew is difficult. So we add a little bit of words here and there to make it flow a little bit more. But I want you just to imagine that word rain not in there and follow along with me now. Let's go talk about this holiness of God and mountain shaking and God's presence. Go with me to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Once again, I, we can read it, we can try to follow along, but to grasp what the Jews went through in the wilderness, that's why there's that pause. David here is saying, go back in time and think about the holiness of God. And then that's something we don't fully grasp. But yet we should see it. Isaiah, when he saw the throne room, he said, holy, holy, holy. Revelation, holy, holy, holy. You see the repetition there of it. No flesh can dwell in the presence of God. But yet here in Exodus 19, you see Israel just very soon after coming out of Egypt. Now comes to meet God. And he says there's a preparation that should happen. Verses 10 and 11. He says, take a couple days and get prepared. You ever thought about that? Getting prepared to meet God? We don't even think about that. Church starts at 1030. For many of us, An alarm wakes us up. Maybe it's a roll out of bed, change clothes, maybe a quick shower, brush your teeth, run a brush through your hair. And you try to get here at 10.30, but the reality is you get here and the first song's already started, the second song's already started. Can you imagine having, coming into the concept of church where you'd stop on Friday and say, I need to make sure I'm ready for Sunday. 
You know, it's not in the Bible, but the Jews used to teach that before the high priest would go in for the Day of Atonement, where he would actually go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the, the multiple days of preparation that he would go through to go into the presence of God. Here, you're getting ready to meet God. Take a few days to get ready. And then verse 12, you should set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourself that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. Put a fence around the mountain so no one can get near it. Put armed people watching it, and therefore, if any animal or person crosses that fence, to shoot them. Don't go near the holiness of God. Fence it in. Shoot anybody that goes near it. Now, this should really be a picture to us that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and the veil was torn to get us into the Holy of Holies, the complete access we have to God now, Hebrews says we can boldly go to the throne room of grace. But understand the holiness that the Jews were in this picture of when it mentions the wilderness. Jump ahead with me down to 16 now. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. See, that's what I'm thinking about. The heavens fell, not rain, but the clouds came down. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who heard in the camp trembled. The trumpet, as best as we can tell from reading Exodus 19, this is not a human being trumpet. This is some type of heavenly, angelic trumpet that's going on. 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. We just read that. Mount Sinai shook. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. That is what he's referencing here. The glory and the majesty of God. Back to Psalm 68, please. Verse 8. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. The holy majesty of God. Verse 9. You sent a plentiful rain. Maybe this is a rain of blessing. Manna rained down every morning. Like the dew. The blessings of food. God came provided, verse 10, for the goodness. He was a God that took care of them, met their needs. Verse 11 and 12, he was the God of protection. Kings of armies fled, verse 12. So much spoil left over, verse 12, that the women come back. The the men, the soldiers stopped and said, we got everything we want. The women came in now and got it. Verse 13 is a difficult verse. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver. And her feathers with yellow gold. I read a lot and I study a lot in message prep. And it amazes me in verse 13. How many men, wise men, smarter than me for sure, came and looked at verse 13 and they said, yeah, we got nothing. It's one of those that sometimes things may not translate over. And if you look in verse 12, certain translators put quotes around uh, starting in verse 12 to verse 13. Some people believe that maybe this was an old poem, an old song that made more sense to them than it does to us. I think you can make a case, though, for verse 13, that you see this idea of somebody lying down in the sheepfolds, but then they're blessed with silver and gold. It almost carries this idea that God brought Israel out of Egypt and they were nothing. 
But now they're blessed with silver and gold that God has almost taken this nothing, this sheepfold, and now have raised them up to something majestic through what he has done. And this victory is so complete, verse 14, when the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. Zalman's mentioned in the book of Judges. It's a wooded area. I talked about its snow. It almost carries this idea here that there was so much spoil, so much stuff left, it covered the ground like snow, that they fled and were so utterly defeated. The power and majesty of God. This is the victory parade that's going on. Verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000. Even the thousands of thousands, the Lord is among them as is in Sinai and his holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. The mountain of Mishan, verse 15. Northern Israel, big mountains, snow-covered mountains, beautiful mountains. Go home and look them up. You see a beautiful picture of them. Pretty big mountains, over 7,000 feet. Majestic, for sure. But verse 16, they're envious. What are they envious of? Verse 16. The mountain which God desires to dwell in, which is Mount Zion. Mount Zion's really not a mountain. Elevation-wise, it's about 2,500 feet, but it's, it builds up to it. It's not like a mountain peak in any way whatsoever. And if you've ever seen a picture of the topography around it, it's dry, it's dirty, it's rocky. There's no snow-covered majesty. There's no peaks. If you would look at a picture of Mount Bashan, and you would look at a picture of Mount Zion, you would say, which one will God dwell in? You'd go Bashan. I mean, that's mountains. God chose Zion. What a picture of us. We're nothing. Absolutely nothing. But yet Corinthians tells us that I'm a walking temple of God. I'm a mess. I have no majestic mountain peaks. I'm not snow-covered. I'm not picturesque in any way whatsoever. I am this dirty hill that God says, yeah, I want to use you. I'm a vessel of clay that God says, yeah, I'm going to put my presence in you. Have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror and realized how you're just utterly falling apart? And God says, I choose to dwell in you. This tent, that's falling apart. I was helping Elias move something the other day. Just moving something simple. All of a sudden, felt something pop in the back. Weeks later, what is going on here? We started the uh, online Bible studies when everything happened this spring. We moved most of them back to face-to-face, but we still have one online study that we do. And I caught myself the other day as I'm looking at my notes and I'm, and I'm teaching that. I looked up a little bit. You know, there's that little delay, just a second. And I could see my hair. And I wrote, boy, I'm really losing my hair. It's going back from the front. It's not a sneak attack from the back. It's happening. It's just a full forward frontal assault. And I'm not really losing it. I think it's just moving to my back. I don't know why, but it's there. It's just changing locations. I'm falling apart. I got a haircut the other day, and I heard uh, Judah and my wife whispering at the table. One of the rules at the Irvin household is there's no private conversations at the table. What are you guys whispering about? Now, Dawn wouldn't say anything. Judah says, your hair, since you got your haircut, you can really tell. It's starting to go. And I always say, guys... Look at Grandpa Irvin. Look at me. What do you think is going to happen to you guys? It's inevitable. It is coming. The reality is we are a hill of Zion that is nothing. Nothing. 
And God says, I desire to dwell in you. That's just unbelievable. We are the walking temple of the Lord. Please remember the blessing of that. Verse 17, God's chariots. I've got to pick up the pace here a little bit. You know, it's interesting. In Deuteronomy 17, God warned Israel, don't multiply horses and chariots. Because it says in Psalms that some will trust in horses, some will trust in chariots. They were going to trust their military might and not God. So don't trust in your chariots. In fact, the chariots of God, 17, aren't even chariots of iron. They're chariots of fire. Think about that. You're going into battle. You get to choose one of two chariots. Do you want the chariot of iron or the chariot of fire? I'll take chariot of fire, please. This is the power of God. You've ascended on high. You're at the top. You've led captivity captive. That's a strange little phrase. But Lord, what you're saying is you have captured captivity. Anything that would take me captive, you have captive, Lord. What a beautiful picture. The threats against me that would capture me, you have captured, Lord. You have led captivity captive, and you have received gifts among men. Paul takes the same verse in Ephesians here, and if we had more time, we'd go into it. And he takes it and changes it just a little bit through the Spirit, where it talks about how God gives us gifts. So once again, not only dwells within us as the temple of God, according to Corinthians, now the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and he gives us gifts, he empowers us, he guides us, he leads us, according to Ephesians 4, when Paul quotes this verse. What a beautiful picture this is. This is that victory parade that's going on of God just taking care of us. Then he keeps building it up. 19, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Selah. Think about that. The God is the God of salvation and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. Note the repetition in 19 here. I should say 19 and 20. The God of our salvation. 20, our God is the God of salvation. I think there's a point there. Salvation can also mean deliverance. It can mean a physical deliverance, escape from death that we see in the Old Testament, but also carries the idea of a spiritual deliverance. We're praising God in this victory parade for, yes, his, his power, his majesty, but most importantly, the salvation that he gives us, the deliverance he gives us. What does he do with this deliverance? 20, Escapes from death. Think about that. You have escaped from death through what Christ has done for us. So it takes us to 19. Back up just a little bit. That's why blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. You're blessed every day with salvation from death. And not only every day of salvation, death daily loads us with benefits. Think of all the benefits you have. There's this theological term they like to use called common grace, which means that believer or non-believer... God still blesses you. It still rains on pagans. The sun still signs on non-believers. Even atheists can wake up and enjoy the sunrise. That's the common grace of God. But yet, daily benefits that we have of walking with the Lord. And He loads us with them. Note, it's a daily benefit. That's why we pray. Give us this day our daily bread. He loads us. It's not just one. We're overwhelmed with these and they're benefits for all of us. That's the amazing blessing of God. That's why there's a victory parade. It's amazing when we get into depression and discouragement in life, we forget verse 19 of how God daily loads us with benefits. Now, some of you may be looking at your Bible right now and says, mine doesn't say loads us with benefits. It says burdens. This is what's interesting. Burdens and benefits still take us back to the same spot and let me explain If God is giving you a burden, he's also promised you to give you the strength to carry the burden. 
So therefore, if you have a burden in your life, he's also giving you the daily load of strength to do it. This is what James and Peter talks about, that any trial or tribulation you go through, you should rejoice in it because that burden is actually a benefit because it takes you deeper in the Lord and it teaches you to trust in him. And that's why you actually rejoice in difficulties and trials and tribulations because you realize, Lord, you're teaching me and training me. So when I get that contact from somebody who's bothered or upset at me and I stop and I think, Lord, this is a burden and I don't like it. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light and I will give you the strength to get through the burden. As you go through the burden, you'll see the burden as a benefit because it took you deeper in me. Please remember that. The burdens we deem as difficult and troublesome, God says, are actually a benefit because they help us and grow us to take us deeper in him. And he brings us to salvation, escape from death. How? Verse 21. He will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. Nice little picture back to Genesis 3.15. If you remember the curse given to the serpent. Where it says the serpent will bite the heel, but the foot will crush his head. What you see in verse 21 is a picture of salvation. God crushing the head of the enemy of sin and death prophesied back in Genesis 3.15. We've got to pick up the pace. 22. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood, and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. The NIV and NLT, I think, translate this or word this a little bit better. It carries the idea that even if my people are in Bashan, this faraway spot of mountains, even if they're in the depths of the sea, I will bring back my people. My people will be victorious. My people will crush. My people will win because I am God and we will win this. Which takes us to our victory parade of 24 that we read earlier. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before. The players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulon and the princes of Naphtali. You see this idea of a parade. You, you have the singers, you have the instruments, you have the ladies, you have the tribes, and you just see this group of people, Israel, coming together and just celebrating God. You have the little tribes, little Benjamin. If you ever look on the back of your Bible, you should probably have a map that shows the land allotment. You'll see Benjamin got a very small allotment. Then you see Judah, great Judah, where the kings came from. Why is Zebulon and Naphtali mentioned? There were tribes to the north. So you have tribes from the north, you have tribes from the south, you have big tribes, you have small tribes. All these people are coming together to celebrate God. The victory parade of either a military victory or the ark coming back probably. 28, your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. I'm going to have to hit these verses quick. But it's important to note this. The strength God did it all. 28, your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. God has done it all. I like the simplicity of Isaiah 26, 12. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. How simple and straightforward is that? You have done all our works in us. Anything I've done is you. Anything I've done is you. 
I can't breathe on my own. I can't move on my own. I can't do anything. So, Lord, it's all you. How completely silly for us to become prideful about anything. Jeremiah tells us if you're going to boast about anything, boast that you know the Lord. That's all. Anything I have is the Lord's. Real quick, I'm just going to go through these verses. Colossians 1.29. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So Paul says, I labor, striving, working hard, but it's him working in me. 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. I worked harder than everybody else. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So Paul says, I worked harder than anybody, but it was actually God's grace in me. Or Philippians 2.12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have also obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So work out my salvation, but it's God who's working in me. Do you see the theme? I worked really hard, but it was God's grace doing it. Lord, I worked out my salvation because it was you working it in me. I'm striving because you're working mightily in me. It's not me. David has a real neat practical example of this. He had asked God to build him a house, or I should say David asked God if David could build God a house, and God came back and said, you're not allowed to build a David, you're a man of blood and war, but your son Solomon will do it. David at that moment could have become mopey and disappointed and depressed. He spent the rest of his life collecting gold and silver and bronze to build this house, so that way when Solomon came into power, Solomon would have all the supplies. So David gave all this to the Lord, but it says this in First Chronicles about it. David speaking, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to suffer, excuse me, to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. A little few verses later. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. David didn't give him anything. David said, God, it's yours. This is not a message on giving. Don't take it that way. But the next time you open up your wallet to make a donation to the Lord, don't think you're giving him anything. It's his. It's all his. How often do we do that? I'm going to give God this. It's all his. My house is his. My car is his. My breath is his. Everything I have is his. My time is his. Where did we get this mindset that I'm making a sacrifice by giving up a possession or energy or time? It's all yours, Lord. And when I can learn that reality that it's all yours, as verse 28 says, it's your strength, Lord. So you strengthen the strength you gave me. All of a sudden, I can be like Paul in the New Testament saying, yeah, I'm working hard. But I'm not working hard. It's God in me that's doing all this work. And I praise him for that. Let's finish this up then. 29. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. Rebuke the beast of the reeds. Probably a reference to Egypt, the Nile and the reeds. The herd of bulls with the calves of the people. So everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia, some of your Bibles say Cush, will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Very simply put, God, you're victorious. Kings 29 will bring presence to you. You're more powerful than Egypt. You're more powerful than Ethiopia. Two countries that constantly cause problems for Israel. You're more powerful than all of them. Which then takes us to verses 32 through 35, which is quite the ending to our victory parade. 32. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord. Selah. Just really stop. 
pause, meditate on that. What's it mean to sing to God praises to Him? Everything we read in this chapter, His deliverance from enemies, blowing them away like smoke, melting them like wax, daily loading us with benefits, taking care of the orphans, the widows, the lonely, the captives, giving us salvation from death, His majesty at Mount Sinai. Sing praise to that. 33. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel. And his strength is in the clouds. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Let's pray. Lord, let us put this into practice. To praise you. To rejoice. To extol you. For your daily benefits for even the burdens you give us to take us deeper in you, for your salvation, for your majesty, for your glory, for your victory over the enemies. Lord, thank you. And we truly do what these passages say. Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. We thank you and we praise you for that in your name. Amen. In way of announcements, um, if you do the large print, our daily breads, those are now available in the back for the month of January. And if you're watching at home and you want one sent to you of the large print ones, let us know. We'll get one sent to you. A couple other things here just want to mention as well. Winter weather is here. We have our winter weather sign-up sheet. That's how we announce we have to cancel church. You'll receive a phone call or a text alert um, from the one call system. There's a sign-up sheet back there at the back table. If you are not signed up for that, we need to have you signed up so that way we can get your name there so you can be contacted. We'll also put it on the church Facebook page. We'll also put it on the church website page as well. But if you have signed up in the past, you don't need to sign up. But if you haven't, please get signed up. If you're watching at home and you want to know as well, you can probably just contact Pat through Facebook or email her and she can get your name signed up for that as well. Big thank you to everybody that helped out with Angel Tree. Big thank you to everybody who helped out with the Christmas program. If you didn't get a chance, excuse me, um, yeah, Christmas program and also Christmas Eve, I should say. If you didn't get a chance to see either the Christmas program or Christmas Eve, those are available on Facebook to watch. Uh, You can also get online and watch it on the YouTube. And we have a CD, I believe, of Christmas Eve as well. Real quick, I'm going to make mention as well. Uh, She's in here somewhere. Sue. Sue Rohde is joining us. She had open heart surgery. How long ago was that, Sue? October 16th here, so making her first appearance back since then. So if you get a chance, go over and love on Sue there. Glad she is doing well. Hey, you guys have a good week. God bless. And um, we'll see you online or face-to-face here in the next week then. Take care, guys.